Hey everyone, Greg Meskel here. Welcome back to another brand new episode of What's Good. Really excited for this week's guest. Uh, if you've been following NBA, Twitter, Instagram, hard to miss this guy. Uh, King Josiah, Josiah Johnson, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hey man, so I, I have to start with, for me, my personal opinion during this NBA restart of the bubble into the finals, I feel like two accounts kind of had, had a really big moment during that time. One was NBA bubble life, kind of chronicling the whole thing. And then the other was, Everything you were sharing, did you get that same sense? Did you feel like it was a big boost for you and what you were doing? Uh, yeah, I man. I think, you know, obviously this was a, you know, super traumatic time and turmoil going on in the country and everything and just, you know, trying to keep people entertained and at least trying to keep them smiling through all the crazy stuff that's going on. It's amazing to think where we were at, you know, March when kind of all that news first broke and watching NBA games and seeing players walk off the court and obviously all that stuff and then all the way through you know, the, the last dance being released, uh, the bubble coming back, and just kind of accepting that this was going to be the norm. So for me, it was just I saw it as an opportunity to, hey, you know, I'm going through a lot of stuff. I'm super depressed right now. Me and my family are obviously dealing with a lot of stuff that a lot of people out there are dealing with. Let me just figure out a way to make people smile and make them laugh and hopefully take their mind off of it, but also to kind of present a message with the stuff that I was putting out as well, just to take the situation serious, take COVID and Corona, you know, really wear your mask, social distance, kind of all that stuff, but do it in a way where it wasn't preachy. It was kind of using satire as a means to get the, the message across, but make no mistake about it. I was very serious about all this stuff that was going on, but I have an ability to, I know my lane and if it, if it didn't work, it didn't fit the tone of my, the voice of my lane, then I wasn't going to do it. So trying to use humor and satire as a way to, to raise awareness, but also shout out to the, the NBA bubble life guys those are good buddies of mine it's funny when, when that account first dropped uh a buddy of mine Trey uh you know I hit him up because I was like yo this looks too professional I know I know you I know you're involved he kind of played it off a little bit but eventually to find out that that whole crew Drew Trey uh Wells and Nick were all you know buddies of mine guys from the NBA Twitter circle and space that I've known for a long time of varying degrees so to see them come up is also it's also great yeah, you're, you're spot on. There was a great opportunity there. They took advantage of it, really kind of just chronicling and cultivating all that great content coming out of the bubble. For people that aren't, aren't following your stuff, at KingJosiah54 on Instagram and Twitter, you talked about knowing your lane and your right. You kind of had a, and you still do, you're, you're posting stuff during the World Series as we're talking now and that sort of thing. But it is a mix of humor and then kind of important messages. What, what kind of constitutes something funny? Like what, if you think about describing the style of how you share stuff and for me, obviously, I'm biased. I think I think what you share, we're about the same age. A lot of the stuff hits, you know, the, the same frame of reference for movies. That stuff, it's like I I get it. You know, I I watch the same stuff growing up. But for you, how do you describe like a, like an ideal share, something you'll post? Uh, really, honestly, just a lot of nostalgia. Like I'm 38 years old, so a lot of stuff that I just remember growing up and remember seeing. I had a, you know, super vast experience my older brother Chris who was I think seven years older than me but I was getting all the stuff that he was listening to growing up like X-Clan and DJ Quick and just a lot of stuff that you know kind of as he was getting into to puberty and growing up and getting older I was kind of experiencing that with him in addition to all the stuff that I saw so you know we, we joke but you know when I was growing up we, uh, my dad lived in Bel Air and he had a uh, this big satellite literally the biggest satellite you could ever see like look like TV station but we used to get shows from all across the country like we were getting East Coast feeds Back in those days, this is like the you know the, the late late 80s, early 90s. So we would just consume so much content, so much media, watch shows on the East Coast feed, then watch them again on the West Coast feed. I think we we're watching WGN like way before you know way, but just getting all that type of stuff. So for me, it's always just correlating what was going on then, and then taking it to pop culture, kind of what's going on now. So something's trending, like you know, basically I look at a clip. Let's say LeBron dunks on somebody. And I know every single every single media outlet, everybody's going to be posting that clip, trying to find that clip of LeBron dunking on him. 
where me is like, I'll spin it forward. Like, we already know LeBron dunked on whoever he dunked on. Let me put a funny meme or video or something that's going to now, like, even if you've seen a hundred versions of the, of the dunk, now here's, here's a joke, here's something else, or here's the guy back in the huddle talking to his teammates afterwards, or here's what the coach thought when he saw it, whatever it may be, just kind of spinning it forward to take that. It's almost kind of still breaking news, but doing it in a way where you just really utilize humor and comedy to get the message across. Because for me, that's one of the biggest engagement tools I feel like on social. If, if you're funny and you put comedy out there, it'll spread like wildfire. You know, it's funny you talk about your older brother. My, my dad didn't play in the NBA, but my older brother's Chris too, and he's five years older than me. And it's the same thing. I was the first person in middle school with a pair of feelers. No one knew what those were about, but like he passed it on down. I knew how to pinch cuff my jeans before anyone else did. Like they were just things that put you ahead of the game, having, having an older brother like that. Uh, that's, that's pretty funny the way you describe that stuff too. Two, two that stood out to me over this time, and I know there have been many. One was the, was the trading places uh, kind of yeah. mashup you did with the Clippers Nuggets. That one seemed to have a lot, a lot of legs. Did you feel like that one maybe hit bigger than some others? Yeah, it's funny. Actually, Chio Coker, who uh, did Luke Cage on Netflix and is big in the Twitter space, does a lot of great stuff. He actually reached out to me. We've kind of developed a friendship just kind of over social. And he's, it's funny because I work in that side as well. But to see the way that people on that side react to the memes and just how stuff and content's created and consumed. So he actually hit me like, yo, like, you know, I got this idea. You know, I should do a Trading Places one. And then as it's breaking down, I'm just like, yo, this is amazing. So we kind of collabed on that. And it's funny, like, I normally don't spend any more than five to ten minutes working on things. Like, I've got kids, family, i got a lot of other jobs. So, for me, like, memes is a great land because it's quick. But sometimes in those rare instances where you see something that's like, oh, this is amazing, I think that would probably take, like, five, six hours to really go in and just figure out which every individual shot was going to be, who was going to represent. But things like that, for me, I, don't, I just think that if it's stuff that makes me laugh, I don't care what it does in terms of viewership and things like that. I just know there's other people out there that have my same or similar sensibilities that will appreciate it. So even if one person appreciates it besides me, that's enough for me. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if it makes me laugh, it makes me crack up. You know, I definitely take requests at times. Like, people send me ideas like, yo, this is amazing. Let's, let's freak it and remix it and do this. But you know, whatever, whatever I feel like is clever in, in that regard. So just, you know, I like putting stuff up. So I hope, I'm glad to see that when it hits. I get sad sometimes when it doesn't, but either way, it's just like I like creating and making art, so. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to have, have a winner every time out, right? You just got to put some stuff out there, and the more you put out, the more you're going to be successful, right? Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, much like in life or sports or whatever, you know, practice makes perfect. It's funny, you know, when I, was, when I was coming up, it took me a long time to even get in kind of the meme game and the meme world. Actually, your former teammate of mine at UCLA, Gene Barnes had me in a group chat years ago and all his friends, that's literally how they were communicating. Everybody was speaking in memes. And I actually got booted out of the chat because I couldn't keep up. I didn't know what was going on. I was like, yo, I felt like an old man at that point. But as I've gotten older, kind of realized how to, to mix these things and remix them. It's kind of like a, you know, a DJ on the turntable, just mixing pop culture with kind of, you know, old school, new school stuff and just putting out something that didn't exist before that people can really appreciate it's funny you talked about taking a request because I was because I was wondering like a like a pro DJ you know do you just try and do your own thing or you have a few of you, a few of your collaborators and if people are lobbying and stuff you kind of want it to be more of your own creation. I mean, generally I try to do all my own stuff. I just think you know it's weird. It's hard for me. Like I'm an Aries. I got tons of ideas, so I'm always just trying to you know on the move. So it's hard for me to take you know hear somebody else's idea and think it's as good as mine, whether it is or not is obviously debatable. <laughs> But, you know, when, if it's a good idea and it's easy to execute or somewhere I can really see, like, all right, this thing is going to go viral, this thing is going to go hammer time and really perform, then definitely. Sometimes I'll get stuff and it's like, look, I'm not that, I'm not that savvy of an editor. I'm super basic. That's kind of been my lane and why I've been able to be successful. If I need, you know, I outsource when I need bigger projects done from 
internet legends who are more savvy with, with graphic design and all that good stuff. But for me, it's kind of more just ideation and then putting the stuff out. And I have a particular style with the things that I do. So as long as it kind of fits that style, I'm, I'm you know, I try and stay in that lane. Uh, the other that killed me was uh, the scene from Goodfellas, which uh, it's where Joe Pesci's about to get whacked walking into that room yeah. where they're going to make him. And that, and that was just another classic one. So that's just two of many, many of the examples. Um, I want to segue a bit and we'll, we'll kind of circle back to, to obviously a lot of the humor stuff. But uh, you're clearly a Lakers fan. When they won, right, just you're, you're posting videos, lots of celebration. Why can't people celebrate the Lakers, celebrate LeBron for what they accomplished this year? Well, it's just funny. I'm a lifelong LeBron James fan, so I've been rocking with LeBron ever since. He actually came and played at UCLA in high school, used our locker room. We were away at an away game, and uh, yeah, he ended up sitting in my chair, and there was a photo of him in Sports Illustrated, posted up you know, with my chair kind of in, in the foreground as he's stretching out. So I was like, when I heard that, when I came back, it was like, okay, I can rock with this dude. He's got good taste. Like He was already kind of a big deal then. But for me to see the way, obviously, his career has progressed and, you know, playing in Cleveland, going to Miami, experiencing championships there, coming back to Cleveland, winning one there. And then, you know, 2018, July 2018 was probably one of the greatest days of my life when it was like, you know, LeBron's coming to the Lakers. Like, I grew up supporting the Clippers because my dad played with them. It wasn't really kind of just – it was what it was at that point. But ultimately, always envious of the Lakers and everything that they had going on and big fans of the, the Kobe and Shaq years and all that good stuff. So – when LeBron came over, it was kind of just like heaven sent to be able to be a part of the purple and gold. And for him to be able to do this, you know, against the odds and what many would consider the hardest, you know, NBA playoff experience. A lot of people are not trying to devalue it because they're LeBron haters or critics, but it is what it is. Speaking to guys like Giannis, Coach Bud over with the Bucks, and, you know, Alex Caruso and other players that were experiencing it, literally one of the hardest situations you have to deal with being away from friends and families for a considerable portion of time, living in a bubble where literally, you're, you know, your opponents are walking around the same areas that you're walking around, you know, mental games, stare downs, all that type of stuff. So for them to be able to do, especially obviously with Kobe passing away tragically and just everything that's going on this year for the city is wild. And, you know, everybody's talking about ratings and all this and all that. The bottom line is the Lakers are the 2020 NBA champion. Everything else is irrelevant. And and is it just a thing where people are going to hate no matter what, like LeBron, everything he's accomplished, he just becomes a simple target to kind of try and knock down? Because personally, I don't, I, I don't understand when people can't, can't appreciate him, right? You, you hear the constant comparisons of him and Jordan and legacies and everything. And, you know, my thoughts throughout the whole playoffs were like, appreciate greatness. Like you're getting a chance to see someone do it as good as it can be done. Why, why can't people enjoy it? Well, I think the problem is, is that, you know, we come from an era where we need to pretend like that era was the toughest, difficult, just had the best players, had, you know. And the reality is, and I get into it with Jordan fans a lot, and I grew up in that era. And as a kid, you didn't really realize it, but I just knew, like, wow, all these new teams in the NBA are coming and all these, you know, cool uniforms and things like that. But you didn't realize, like, yeah, this is like a watered-down version of the league. And guys like Magic and Larry Bird, who played, you know, pre that period, would tell you, like, yo, they're, they're like, yeah, we wish we'd have got six, seven teams added in that time frame. So to see that and what was going on then, of course, we think players from back then are the best and that, you know, they would, they would be able to compete and survive in this era. But we haven't seen anything like LeBron James. And him coupled with Anthony Davis, who obviously got a lot of criticisms of his own playing uh, with the Pelicans about, you know, not being able to advance far enough in the playoffs and not being a leader and not being this and not being that. Like, no, he just needed the proper motivation what L.A. will do for you, playing with the purple and gold, playing in Staples Center with those, you know, that, that beautifully well-lit arena with all those famous people. That'll get you to where you need to be. So we're here. Again, we're the champs. Not really not really worried about, hey, what anybody else has to say. Come see us. We'll be ready to go. You know, everybody acts like the Lakers aren't going to be making moves in free agency. Now 
guys are going to want to come and play with a championship team. So shout out to Rob Palinka, Jeannie Buss, everything they've been able to accomplish. And yes, it's great to be in LA, UCLA, Lakers. You know, these are just things that, that, that make you excited. The Dodgers obviously performing well. This is what you what you want as a Los Angelino. And when we get these moments, even though we can't really appreciate it like we want to with the, you know, the pandemic going on, still got to live it up. Social media, whatever it is, we're taking all phase. You, you talked about growing up, keeping an eye on the Clippers, obviously, with your dad, and then and then now, obviously, supporting the Lakers and LeBron. Kind of just getting into that, and, and I don't even know if some people consider it a rivalry, but there but there's a weird dynamic, Lakers, Clippers, and, and I grew up in the New York, New Jersey area. Knicks, Nets is not the same way. Like, maybe it's getting a little bit more like that since they moved to Brooklyn, but it was very clear that the Nets were not very good and the Knicks were the established team and nobody was confusing the two. Like even Nets fans stayed where they were at. They were not ever trying to say like, Oh, Knicks fans, this or that. Like, it seems like here in LA, the Clippers are always trying to punch up with the Lakers and the fans kind of go back and forth. How do you see it? Like having been on both sides, it's not really a rivalry as a Clippers fan. You've kind of just been used to taking L's your entire existence. Obviously the Donald Sterling area era was, wasn't really looked favorably. It was kind of a black guy on the entire league. Steve Ballmer's kind of come in, rejuvenated, brought some new life, got Kawhi, got PG. And the thing is, as a LeBron Laker fan, I was definitely hurt, especially because Kawhi kind of did LeBron dirty, you know, led him to believe that he might be interested in coming to the Lakers, really was just, you know, doing some stuff behind the scenes. So it's like, okay, that's fine. So for that to happen and them to kind of declare themselves paper champs before the season and even started billboards, you know, and I get it, you're the underdog, you got to punch up, try and take shots at the, you know, at the crown, but it's just, it, was, it wasn't in a good position, especially knowing kind of the history that the Clippers have, being the Slippers, not ever being able to, you know, get to a Western Conference Finals, but assuming that they were just going to win the championship. And I think there was this big buildup, you know, for the Clippers-Lakers to meet in the playoffs, and the Lakers were there ready to go. And the Clippers didn't show up, obviously, you know, tricked off a 3-1 lead to the Nuggets. The game is the game. So I think Clippers fans had to humble themselves, take a step back, really, you kind of, you know, swallow their pride, really have those tears, and just, you know, bend the knee, as we say. Like, you know, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. Sometimes you just got to bend the knee to LeBron James and the Lakers, understand what's going on here. Best of luck to them next year. We'll see what Ty Lue can do. But until that happens, that's all just conjecture. That's debate. That's, you know, hypotheticals. We live in reality where the Los Angeles Lakers are the 2020 NBA champions. You, you, you clearly had to explain this a couple of times before, so I love that answer on that. You've, you've been in sports – or around sports pretty much your whole life. Every team that I've been around or talked to athletes, there's just comedy find, finds a way in sports. Why, why are sports teams, basketball teams, locker rooms, such a good breeding ground for just hilarious moments? Um, I think, you know, no matter what sport you play, really it's just, you know, every, every kind of sport is like their own tribe and has their own existence. Like football obviously has got way more dudes, so it's a lot more personalities, but more clickish because obviously you have your different positions that all just rock with each other. Basketball kind of similar. You got the guards and the bigs, but at the end of the day, the team's only 12 to 15 guys. So we're literally hanging out with each other. We're all in the locker room together. Literally, you have to get super comfortable with seeing you know, guys junk swinging around and dudes naked and kind of just, I mean, that's just what, you know, as, as a kid coming from high school, that's just what you accept and what you deal with. So in those environments, you deal with a lot of people. And it's also a pride thing, no matter, you know, when you're in those situations and guys come at you, you got to defend yourself because if they think you're weak, you know, in the locker room, they're going to think you're weak on the court and try and you know, really take advantage and exploit that. So guys will crack jokes at each other. Even guys that aren't really big jokesters, but still nonetheless, like you got to be able to defend yourself and, it's just a situation where when you're with guys for six to eight months, obviously in the trenches, practice every day, going through, you know, the hardest of workouts and things like that, you need that kind of balance of, of, of joking around, having a good time, hanging out, 
and that's what kind of the, the, the locker room gives you. You can tell even in the work space that people that have dealt with, with like the team setting and been in those environments and how they react to certain things versus people who didn't necessarily didn't have that type of background. And it's an interesting dynamic because, look, you get used to it. It's sports. You guys are going to talk junk to each other, talk smack, and that's just what it is. Be, you know, you, you either you either deal with it or you get, you get you know, eaten alive. So, and, and you're right, too. In sports, you get guys just thrown together that, you know, maybe they have that common skill of basketball, but they're from different states, different countries, right? You never know that mix. You, you played at UCLA. Your brother played there, right? I mean, your dad, great, great family history. UCLA is one of those story programs. You have the uh, the warm up behind you there. What's what's it mean to be a part of that UCLA family? It feels different to me having been around campus a bit than say if you played at Fresno State. No knock on them, but I mean honestly, it's, it's the it's the greatest basketball fraternity you know imaginable. I think you know you look at other schools and what they've been able to accomplish, but nobody has 11 national championships. It's just a, a pedigree of winning, but also of guys stepping to the forefront on and off the court. You know, think of somebody like Kareem, who everything he's did as a basketball player, you know, considered the GOAT by many, including myself, but everything he did off the court, you know, to raise awareness and really a lot of the same stuff he was dealing with in the 60s we're still dealing with now, which is sad, but it's just kind of, it is what it is. But guys like Bill Walton, you know, Jamal Wilkes, my pops, you know, everybody kind of from that generation, you just look at it with such reverence and respect. And like, you know, these were the wooden era guys and, you know, they put all the banners up in Poly every time you go. You know, I, I played in a lot of different arenas across the country and you don't see what you see in Poly. Like we don't hang like the, the Sweet 16 or the, hey, you know, the, the participation trophy banners. Like if, you're, if you don't win a natty, your, your joint's not getting up there. You know, I think there's still the NIT championship banner up there, which I respect and rock with from, from that crew. But I think it's playing – Playing in that fraternity, being around guys that have just accomplished so many great things on and off the court, you know, from the different generations and just being around these dudes, soak up, you know, wisdom for them. I mean, just, I grew up, obviously, my dad played there, my brother played there. I went to elementary school on UCLA's campus at a school called UES. Obviously, went to college. I spent the bulk of my, my young life there. So everything just about the school, even, you know, I'll go back on campus now with my family, just walk around and, you know, just just, just feel the vibe again, hear, hear the, the bell at Royce ring and just, you know, just basic stuff that you get, you know, breathing the air on campus. Nothing really replaces that feeling. I still get flashbacks now as a 38-year-old man of just, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old just being immersed in that environment and that culture. No, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. Going to the Nepal for the first time, the first game I ever saw was St. Saint John's UCLA Lavin's first game back in Westwood. And it was like, wow, this is what you grew up seeing on CBS, you know, on Sunday afternoons. And it was the ultimate experience to be in there. Yeah. Um, you had said in an interview, I, I think I read or watched earlier, you're, you're, at, you're at UCLA and you realize like you're on the team, but basketball is not, not going to be your thing going forward as a player. What, what do you remember about that moment and how did it kind of set the table for what you do now in comedy and writing and everything else? Well, it's funny. I think, you know, I, I really, really realize like, I, as a freshman coming in and I wasn't the most, you know, mature and developed. I was kind of a late bloomer, but I'm playing with guys like Dan Gadzereach, who's literally just, you know, seven foot one, size 13 shoe, but just all muscle running like a, you know, five minute mile, just like, you know, absurd. Like I'm, I have to guard this guy in practice. Like what am I supposed to do to defend this guy? Or, you know, my roommate and teammate TJ Cummings, who another guy like six, nine, just, you know, buttery jumper, but, guys you look at and you're comparing your body to their body and it's like you know I'm gonna put in the work and put in the effort so actually I remember my first couple of years like grinding super hard was working out with Jason Capone all the time in the summer and really just trying to get my body right and do everything but it just became apparent 
as guys would come in, like, all right, yeah, you're probably not going to play that. You know, I'm not going to play over him. I'm not going to play over him. So you kind of just get used to it and you embrace and you try to figure out other ways to help out, whether it's, you know, just going as hard as you can in practice or getting these guys prepped and ready for film study or helping out as much as you can with, you know, study halls and things like that, just being a mentor and a resource for guys to figure out how to navigate and operate. It's funny, I, I compare UCLA and, you know, a lot of people won't get this, but kind of like to Shawshank. It's like, it's not a prison per se, but it's just an institution, right? You got to figure out how to, how to move and shake and operate and how to do things. And, you know, there's barter systems, there's code, there's ways just to, you know, to circumvent, do, do whatever you need to do. So really just immerse yourself in that life. And I kind of realized at that point, probably like freshman, sophomore, you know, my redshirt sophomore year, that it probably wasn't going to be a thing. I needed to figure out life beyond that. I'd always been interested in entertainment and kind of that world. So figured out how to parlay that, use my, my, my sense of humor, my ability to make people laugh and put it to good use. Because I was a history major. And with that major leader, you can only go to law school or become a teacher. So it was really like, you know, <laughs> I got to figure this out quick because I'm not, I'm not really trying to be a teacher. My mom's a teacher, no disrespect to teachers, but that's just not what I was meant to be in this world. And I tried the same thing. I subbed for a couple of years and I realized much, much respect to teachers. Also not a thing that I can handle right now. So yeah, I'm I totally trying to do no little kids, man. Get the, <laughs> get the little kids out of here. Exactly. You know, it's funny you mentioned Dan, Dan Gad's reach. This is random. Were you at the 2001 NCAA tournament in Greensboro, North Carolina? I believe you still played Hofstra. Yes, I was. I, I remember that tournament very well. Hofstra came in woofing at us. I believe that was Earl's senior year. Hofstra came in kind of like, you know, you know, I remember like like you 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 meet at practice or whatever. Like I think we we were on and then they came on whatever. But it was kind of like stare down and like oh yeah whatever we're about to do it. So we smacked them up and I forget who we played in the second round. But we I think we smacked them. Obviously go to Sweet Sixteen. Ended up losing to Duke if I'm not mistaken that year. But Duke went on to win the Natty if I'm not. No no. Mistaken. Well this well this is where I can come in and help you out. They did because I was at that warm up. Uh, with the 16th seeded Monmouth Hawks as their radio announcer, where we took a slight L to Duke by about 50 points. But I remember <laughs> watching Gadzerich just hammer repeatedly dunks in warmups, and it was it was so cool to see the UCLA group. And it's funny to know you were there too. Yeah, I was there. I was my redshirt year, so I had just kind of come off a foot injury. But I remember, like you know, usually I remember Greensboro being super turned up, and obviously it was it was Duke country, and, and you know, you know, tobacco roll and all that good stuff. So, but just playing out there in the Coliseum being humongous. I, I think, was that where the Hornets played? I don't know for sure, but. Yeah, no, I think it was uh, just like a big a big Coliseum that always hosted the ACC tournament, the Greensboro Coliseum. Okay. Yeah, because okay. it was a little bit up, up the way from Charlotte. But you're right about, I, I remember thousands of people being there for Dukes, just, just, that, just that hour warm-up. They were there, and I remember a woman in the stands with a sign that said, like, Battier, be my daddy, or something like that. So that, so that was pretty intense. We would go, and it's funny, as I, as, as I progressed to UCLA, we started experiencing some of the same thing. We'd go places like Kansas and some of these spots where literally they'd be like students be camped out and whatever. And, and, and then UCLA, we started doing it as well. But for me, it was always just like, you know, I mean, I respect it, but it's like, you know, you guys got to study and like, you know, you have dorms and like, can we figure out a better system? I get showing, you know, I get the dedication and everything on the students' behalf, but you guys are already paying an arm and a leg to come to the school. We need to do something nicer for you guys to be able to, you know, just to show how loyal you are but we were like bringing pizza and donuts and stuff like that. And I obviously appreciated it, but it was just incredible for me to see how, how crazy these other schools were in terms of basketball. So post-basketball, uh, as, as you talked about, you know, you kind of got into that uh, TV world, working in sports and then kind of getting into the comedy side and uh, a great moment a couple of years ago, getting Legends of Chamberlain Heights uh, launched and then running for a couple of seasons and 
hilarious. Uh, clips are still available on demand. What, what, what was the biggest fun, fun takeaway from that experience? I imagine it was a, it was a career goal to write a show and to get it on the air. I mean, obviously, it was a tremendous experience. It's funny because literally those experiences at UCLA would help lay the foundation for that. Obviously, myself and Quinn Hawking, who were uh, creators on the show, and Ike Williams, who was our teammate at UCLA, literally was based on our true experiences as, you know, three guys on the end of the bench and how we would entertain and keep ourselves, keep ourselves you know, entertaining, you know, focus on the game and all that good stuff. But for, for to be able to have that opportunity, honestly, is one of the greatest experiences in my professional career that, you know, you just can't take away. Like, to be watching a cartoon of yourself that came on after South Park and, you know, was based on just kind of basketball culture and everything like that and have made something from those experiences, which, look, if anybody can tell you, sitting on the end of the bench and being in that world is super depressing. It's super difficult when you want to go out there and play and want to be able to contribute and you got friends and family watching the games and, you know, don't see you get in the game. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's definitely embarrassing. But to be able to take those experiences and use – the show is kind of a creative outlet to talk about them and just talk about life as a hooper and everything like that. And to see the response of it and see the type of people that, you know, like the show Shaq, Nipsey Hustle, just all, you know, people like that, you know, you're getting, I remember like I used to run the social for the account, Nipsey Hustle filed the account. I'm literally like running around the office, like screaming, like, you know what I mean? Just like to know like you know, you know, rest in peace to the legend, but just to know like, I remember that day, like, oh, well, like we just got a follow from Nipsey. Like he, he sees the show, like, just to know that type of stuff was happening to people. Because when you create, you're in a vacuum. A lot of the stuff I do when I'm, I'm posting on Twitter, whatever it may be, I'm in a vacuum. I'm literally at home. I'm, you know, I got my kids running around, whatever's going on. So when I put that thing out into the universe to see people respond to it, see people quoting it, fan groups and all types of random people hitting me up still, like to tell me how much they love the show. It's just an amazing experience. So got to thank UCLA for even opening up that opportunity. Well, and the same thing happens now. I just, I just looking at the at, at at the short piece with the undefeated that you did, kind of explaining some of your background and the people that reshared that and commented on that big big name showing love right there. That has to really kind of validate uh, what what you're doing and kind of pushing you to keep going forward, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, I've, I've been very blessed and fortunate, especially you know it's been a tough time during the pandemic for a lot of people. I've been fortunate enough to to, to work on some great products, to be able to work with Ava DuVernay and Michael Starberry on, on the show based on Colin Kaepernick's life for Netflix, to be able to do incredible things doing the show with Yahoo Sports Dunk Bay with, uh, you know, Zach Schwartz and, and LeJethro Jenkins, two, two of my, my favorite dudes, you know. So I've been blessed and fortunate and to just do a lot of stuff. So I would just tell people, man, keep, keep grinding, keep, keep trucking along and, you know, do what you got to do to survive and succeed in this world. I'm glad you brought up the Netflix show and Dunk Bait. What, what's, the, what's the ultimate? What's, what's on the bucket list here for you when it comes to working in comedy? Honestly, I think it's funny. When, when, when I was younger, I think everybody's kind of goal was to make it in TV and to make it in film. And that was kind of like, oh, you had to be a star in that, right? But for me, I think what we've seen, especially in social and other things, like social's basically blown up into this humongous world now. You look at all these meme accounts that are popping up, all these big influential people that are buying meme accounts now accounts selling for hundreds of millions of dollars. They literally just post memes a lot of times. They steal stuff from me. I'm not going to say anything, but that just, it, it is what it is. But, you know, so you, you see the world and the business and, and how everybody responds to it. I had a good buddy of mine, CJ Toledano, who, who's a creative director of House of Highlights, but he dropped a video of uh, the guy drinking the, uh, the cranberry juice dog face, I think, on TikTok, yep. the Fleetwood. But he dropped a video of him in a Lakers jersey uh, right when, you know, the championship, right, right when the clocks hit zeros. And for me to see, you know, he, he's kind of sent me the video a couple of days in advance, like, yo, what do you think about this? But just to see those type of things and know, like, 
this is the world. This thing's going to do five, six, seven million views. Like, just that adrenaline rush you get. So the, the world is kind of morphed now. So for me, the end game is really doing a little bit of both. Still doing a lot of stuff on the TV, the streaming, you know, the film side, but also doing a lot of stuff on the social side. That's where I really get my enjoyment and my kick out of, you know, watching an event live with people and coming up with the most cleverest meme or, or putting together a funny mashup or parody or skit or whatever, whatever comes to my brain and seeing that thing that I literally, like I've literally written songs and done all types of stuff that literally was done on the computer. And to see those go onto the world and do millions and millions of views, it's like, all right, man, like, you know, because I think a lot of people that work in a creative environment can tell you that one time when you work in companies in that corporate world, you don't really get to express yourself creatively as much as you want to without getting a lot of kickback and feedback. And, you know, it's all, it all is what it is. It's all part of the ecosystem. But when it's like, you know, I come up with a concept on social, like, oh, I'm going to make a, a song called ADs on the way with Ice Cube. Today is a good day beat. And I'm going to write all the lyrics out and make this thing funny, add some jokes and some humor in there, and then to drop that thing and to see it, you know, do millions and millions of views and see people have the same response that you had when you were putting it together and it literally came out of thin air. Like, you know, it's a rewarding feeling. It's like a drug and I can't get enough of it. So I literally will we'll keep doing both because I love the TV side too, but I love that mix of TV and social. We're talking with Josiah Johnson here, King Josiah 54 on Instagram and Twitter. When I see your stuff posted, I'm amazed at the speed at how quickly you respond to something in the moment. I was wondering, what's that guy's drafts folder like? Do you just have stuff ready to ride or how do you get it out so quick? It's funny, like some, 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 I, I tell people, it's like you live in the meme culture, the meme world, especially TikTok, where one person will do a dance and then a billion other people will do it and people watch every single one of those videos. You're not recreating the wheel with memes and social. Really, it's just identifying the most hilarious, recognizable memes and how those correlate to particular situations. Like if a guy has a bad play and he wants to apologize to his teammates, there's a meme for that. If a, you know, guys, Miss five, six shots in a row, there's a meme for that. You know, there, there, if Caruso does anything, there's memes for that. So draft folder, I mean, I'll definitely, I'll definitely mark videos. I'll send myself videos as I see them. Like, oh, this would be great to remix this video for whatever I want to use it for. But most of the time when stuff happens, it's either like, oh, bam, that reminds me of something. I'll go grab a clip and kind of mix it together to, to really get it out. Or just thinking about, you know, I've got an extensive library of just pop culture clips from my era. And that's what I tell people, like, I don't really, like, you'll never see me post Spongebob memes, because Spongebob is in my era. I still really don't grasp when kids use these, understand it, <laughs> knock yourselves out, like, those things hit for a lot of kids, but I'll get Spongebob memes sent to me and say, I have no idea what you're talking about, bro, I missed this. <laughs> but, the, but the same way you guys look at the Saved by the Bell meme I'm about to drop on you, that's not a new class or a new, new class or college years or whatever that, you know, you have no clue about, I look at a Spongebob. So I just stay in my lane with content. But I know that there's people that are in our age range that will literally see that and be like, oh, dang, that reminds, that reminds me of exactly of that moment. And just kind of that nostalgia and that feel of taking you back to – ultimately, it's funny because it'll take you back to whenever – like for me, like I'm a big movie buff, so I'll watch movies and I'll know the theater I was in, just kind of how that movie made me feel when I saw it live or the first time I ever saw it. So having those same experience, I feel like just nostalgia takes you back down memory lane and helps you just remember things that were going on in the world and kind of find the humor in it. Yeah, and, and you're, you're spot on with the SpongeBob stuff. I see it come up again and again. I'm obviously aware of who the characters are. I've probably been educated about the show by seeing memes. I otherwise do not know what's going on. So uh, I'm right there with you. Any uh, built-in rules on the usage of your dad and white man can't jump? Um, try to save that just for key marquee moments. I remember, I mean, I've used it a few times. I think probably for me the most prevalent time was during the slam dunk contest when Aaron Gordon, I feel like, got robbed. And literally... <laughs> 
just thinking in my head, I dropped that thing. I think it did, you know, it's crazy for me to be able to use a meme of my dad in it and watch it do millions and millions of views. And then for him to see that happen in real time. And again, like I said, it's the nostalgia. So people see that, hit him up, you know, he gets an influx of followers. He's feeling good. So it's great when I can use memes of my family or friends and get those out there or use my friend's content to help, you know, amplify it or whatever it may be. So yeah, any, anytime I get to use family, of course, it's a, it's a winner. How often do you not go through with something where you're like, ah, a, I'm maybe a little bit on the edge there and I'm just going to delete? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely reckless a lot of the times with my tweeting <laughs> and we'll, we'll post stuff that's uh, in, in bad form. So generally I'll pull that stuff quickly. Sometimes I'll put stuff up and within a minute or so, you know, I've had to pull some stuff that was literally, you know, going to go super viral just because like, yeah, this is offensive or somebody might be offended by this or might not understand whatever I was trying to go for with a particular joke or and sometimes I'll just post a screen grab from a movie and if you've seen that movie then in your head you'll be able to be like oh this is the scene where whatever happens like oh this is in Boogie Nights where you know they're about to rob the guy he literally is so cracked out of his mind that he doesn't know what's going on but sometimes you may see it and be like wait are you trying to say this that or whatever and it's like no it's not that serious I mean sometimes it's more complex sometimes it's not so I just try to I try, I know kind of the line that I'm able to cross. I think I've developed a reputation for being kind of risque with the content that I put out, but definitely know, you know, I'll, I'll violate every once in a while where I'll be a habitual line crosser, but try to, I have jobs now and I work with companies, so I have to kind of tone all that down, I'm sure, you know, so can't really say what I want to say all the time, but still honestly say a lot of stuff, kind of hoping like that, that they see it and, you know, there is some backlash, but it is what it is. I mean, it's hard. Some of the stuff you share has helped you get get where you're at. I'm sure people 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 see this stuff, and so you have to kind of trust your instincts, right? It's wild because I'll, I'll I'll maybe like you know like I've been super you know super vocal about kind of the NFL treatment of Kaepernick even before I started working on the show. You know, definitely took issue with. I worked in the NFL Network for the better part of ten years. That was one of the the second spot I started at when I came out of college. Like first full time job I had was at NFL Network. And, uh, you know, I've been super just, just really bothered by it. And even kind of the league's messaging and dealing with everything in the wake of, you know, the George Ford and Breonna Taylor situations. So I'll, I'll say some stuff that's inflammatory at times, but it's funny. I'll have people that work there that'll hit me in the DMs or, you know, if people at other companies say things that I feel like are out of pocket and I use my platform to raise awareness about it, people that work at those companies will DM me and be like, yo, you're right. I can't, you know, obviously I can't, you know, say anything, but just appreciate you for, we're bringing attention to that. So I try and tell people like I'm reckless with my stuff. So if there's ever something going on that you can't say yourself that you'd like me to do, just go ahead and send it over. Let me, let me just review it, make sure it makes sense. Make sure I feel the same way you do about it. And I'll have no problem going at whoever in a, you know, clever, you know, classy professional type of way, but definitely letting you know what it is. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You'll uh, speak that, speak that truth to them in a, uh, a way that is acceptable for all. Um, <laughs> A couple more for you here, and, and this, this has been really fun, so appreciate you taking the time to, to kind of talk through some of this. The NBA this season, it felt different, obviously, for, for a number of reasons, right? Uh, everything going on outside of basketball, the bubble environment. Do you think the way that everyone was kind of just focused on basketball was kind of like a one-off? I and mean, if it goes back to regular play, fans in the stands, normal schedule next year, we won't have that same it, it just felt different to me. Like it was so concentrated. There were so many games going on, this, you know, at once. It was a it was a condensed period of time. I know the ratings were whatever down. I don't care. But for the diehard hoops fan, w was this a once in a lifetime sort of thing of everyone just being focused on it? Like I think when we look back to March and you had that visual, you know, of the, the games getting canceled. I think it was like a Jazz game and another game where guys mm -hmm. were literally walking off the court because of, of the, the coronavirus situation going on in the country, and being in that lockdown and being, you know 
I remember me and my wife every day for the first couple of weeks, it was just like, all right, we need to be prepared for whatever. You know what I mean? And really kind of whatever's going to happen is going to happen. We need to be prepared for whatever may end up arising, you know, waiting hours to get into to grocery stores and doing all types of things. So to even be able to have basketball come back in the environment that it did, you know, kudos to Adam Silver and the NBA for, because when this, I was, I was, I wasn't a big fan of it coming back. I was kind of on the fence. Like, of course I would I would wanted to see LeBron win a championship, but not at the risk or, or detriment of his health or any of the players' health. Just, you know, we didn't really know what was going on in the world. And I think, you know, you look at guys on the UCLA football team, who I think we're at the forefront of kind of, you know, putting a halt to everything and just saying, hold up, we're not going to, you know, like we're student athletes, we can't even make money. And you want us to go out there and risk our lives without any real, you know, understanding of the situation and what the protocols need to be. And I think I forget what player on the team said this, but made the point that, you know, all it takes is that one person. And, and it may only be one person, but, you know, it was supposed to be me. Like, you know, what if it's me or what if it's whoever, one of my teammates? Like, how are we supposed to be able to live with each other doing that? So to see the way that the NBA didn't had no positive tests really ultimately set the standard for smaller sports and how they can operate and how they can still obviously, you know, fulfill their, their sponsorship commitments and everything, enter the games and not have a season loss, which would have been detrimental to not only the league, but the players. If you think about, you know, subsequent CBA negotiations, obviously the price points coming down, TV contracts, all that type of stuff. Like there are long-term ramifications that I think we're still not out of the woods that obviously it's yet to see how those things will, will turn out down the road. But for the league to put this thing together, you know, you know zero positive tests, and put out a very high quality product. I mean, the, the virtual screens, you know, I, we interviewed Nick Nurse from the Raptors last week and basically, you know, we're asking like, what was it like for you at home? This looks like a great experience for us. Like, you know, you got virtual fans, you got sound, you got noise, lights, lasers, all type. You know, he was like, you know, it took a while to get used to, but I think once, you know, you're there a while and basketball players are creatures of habits and routines like most athletes. So once you do something enough and it becomes a routine to you, you know, as a couple of weeks go through and the honeymoon period goes off, you get used to it, you know, you're able to adjust and deal with it. But just to see the way that the league put everything together, you know, how detail-oriented they were, how much they ensured the same thing with the WNBA bubble, you know, to make sure that everything was, you know, definitely obviously some, some things to improve. I think, you know, not everybody got to bring family and things like that. Definitely things that can be improved. But at the end of the day, to be able to put that out without a hitch, get it done when people like myself who are big avid basketball fans were definitely doubters of that to see them accomplish that is amazing. And then on the, on the social justice message front, can that, can that continue at the, at the level that it was at during WNBA and NBA going forward? I, I hope so. I think, you know, for me, it's very bothersome as, as a black person in America, but it feels like every time there's a problem, it's like, Hey, black people go fix this problem. It's like, this is, this problem's impacting us. We don't, you need to fix this. Like we, you know, we're already telling you this. It's not like black people ever stopped telling you how messed up society was for us. It's, you know, I think people stopped listening because Obama became president and that kind of made everybody feel like, well, look, you know, you can have a president, but it's like, look, he's, you know, he's the first black president. We're still seeing the first black, you know, a lot of things, the first Asian, a lot of things going on in this country, the first Latino, a lot of things. So to see everything going on in the world, I think, you know, everybody was like, oh, well, you know, as if like, you know, Athletes had nothing else to do besides, like, you know, march and protest on the streets. They couldn't use their platforms for good in other ways. Like, LeBron James has, you know, over 100 million follower reach, I think, across all his different social. So he can put out messaging and content that can get to people where he doesn't need to be on the ground, you know, the ground level. Like, he needs to be able to, to do his job and get his money so that he can be able to do all these things to help support these different movements and activities. So I think a lot of people 
we're telling them to boycott. And it's like, I'm not, a, I'm not an advocate or fan of that because that's not how you're going to get change enacted. And I think just to look at the way the league stepped up and the way these guys stepped up and used their platform, used all their messaging to be able to reach an even larger audience. Of course, I think it was, it was, it was a great move because at the end of the day, these guys are, you know, they have families to feed and they need to be able to make money to support themselves. So I don't think it's right for any of us to tell them to boycott. That's not how you get things accomplished. So just to see the way that they all stepped up, guys like LeBron and even guys like Alex Caruso with the Black Lives Matter on the back of his jersey and being an ally and an advocate was a truly, you know, incredible thing to see. Really, really well said. We had, we had our interviews here with our three what's good questions in there, and they can be kind of a departure from your day-to-day. And I'll start first with kind of in the vein of self-care, but what's, what's something during all this uh, pandemic time that you've just done for yourself? Uh, honestly, I, so I was – I was really fat. And, and if, if you know anything about the Johnson family, we can fluctuate weight very easily. I think, you know, my older brother was, was famous for losing, losing 70 pounds in between his freshman and sophomore year. You know, we can, we can put on weight and pack it in. So I think beginning of the pandemic, you know, I was doing the show with Dunk Bait and kind of was going at Steph Curry fans a lot. And they would always kind of try and fat shame me. And, you know, you talk about my appearance and things like that. So I was like, okay, I got one for you guys. So during, you know, start a pandemic, just started really hitting workouts hard, you know, working out four or five times a week. So I think, you know, beginning of pandemic, I was probably in like the 350 range. Now I'm at like 290 and kind of, kind of keep, keep, I just try to use this thing. I think, you know, it almost felt like you were in a mental prison at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, hey, you had to be home quarantining. Those of us who were following procedures and protocols and listening to doctors and not listening to reality stars and things like that. But, you know, you had to be, you know, it was almost kind of like being in your own mental jail. So for me, like working out just became a creative outlet and release just to be able to, you know, not have to wear my mask, go on a jog for three, four miles, kind of be out in nature and smell the world and kind of still get some semblance of normalcy. So really been, been kicking that into full gear. So I'm super excited to be able to accomplish that. That's no, well done. Awesome. Awesome job. And I think everyone was supposed to try and accomplish something. The big lame joke at the beginning was baking sourdough bread or something, but you did something actually tangible. So well done there, dropping 60 pounds. Uh, I did that myself once upon a time, and I know it is a uh, big, big accomplishment, uh, and you probably feel a whole lot better. So um, what's, what's something you've done for someone else during this time? Uh, for me, honestly, just trying to be a uh, creative outlet and release for, for a lot of these young creatives out there, especially you know African-American who, you know, want, want to be able to, to attain the level of success that I've been able to attain. So trying to be as, as, you know, just really, you know, open and available as possible, you know, helping guys with projects, jumping on podcasts, checking out people's scripts and giving thoughts, you know, really just trying to use and take advantage of the situation I'm in. Because I had a lot of people that helped me out as I, I started this rise upward. So I can't thank them enough, but I feel like the way I can thank them is to really embody all the values that they, they bestowed upon me and I'll give those to the next generation so they can feel it. I think we live in a world now where kids really need to believe and understand that they can become successful just using social media or writing or doing whatever they want. They don't have to be afraid of the kind of, you know, the machine that's been put in place to kind of deny these things historically. Now is the perfect time to really go out there and do it. And you've, you've been around a lot of successful people, whether it's in sports or now in your professional world. How, how energizing is it for you to be around those that are also trying to do something big and great? The things I don't really hang out with people that aren't trying to do something. I'm, I'm not like a snob or anything like that. I've got tons of friends that are at different, different type of levels. But if you don't have that drive and energy, because that starts to really wear on you. And those, those people that don't have that can be, you know, I think once you kind of realize how this world works, for, at least from my standpoint, 
just how capitalism works as a machine. It's like, yeah, I don't want to be just, you know, traditional labor anymore. I want to excel and exceed and do more things. So just really trying to apply myself and, and get as much done possible, but just trying to, you know, you know, use my reach and, and whatever it may be to, to make those things happen. I mean, I'm glad you're telling the younger generation that because I think it can take people a long time to understand different people's energies and the ones they should surround themselves with. So yeah. Just be well around creative. If you're a creative, be around creative people. If you're a musician, be around musicians and not people that, that, that claim they're musicians. Like, be around people that are making music and grinding. Like, the thing, you come to L.A. especially, and, and it can swallow you up because you see all the success, you see all the fame, but you don't realize, like, you know, I, I produce at the highest level. As a producer, people might think, oh, I'm just in business meetings all day and doing whatever. Like, no, I'm working 18 to 20 hours, literally knee-deep in a script, trying to really be five different characters and trying to make sure this thing still flows and doesn't sound terrible and second-guessing and questioning myself and doing a bunch of other different things. So people see the kind of success. They see me at this point now, but I've kind of come at this point where literally as a creative, I'm just, you know, almost like Yoda-like from the standpoint of just, I've just attained that level where – no outside noise can really bother me. Everything is just focused on me, my wife, my kids, my family, really supporting them. I got two kids, so everything is for them now. So at the end of the day, it's not even for me anymore. It's to support them and make sure that they can have the things that they want and deserve as they get older. You, you make a lot of people laugh. What's the, what's the thing you turn to that makes you laugh? Um, I'm a big fan of uh, this group called RDC World on Twitter with Supreme Dreams. It's got Mark Phillips. But Mark and his crew, literally uh, crew of guys in Texas, all buddies, but they make hilarious videos and NBA Twitter, anime, ran with like Popeye's jokes, literally everything, skits and sketches. But for me, they represent kind of what I feel like me and my crew were when we were younger, if we would have had really social media to take advantage of, or if we would have took advantage of it more now. But, you know, these guys literally are crew. They just started making videos, not all their videos do millions of views. Every time they drop a video, the entire internet is on, you know, Baited breath, waiting for it to happen. Like you know, they've had a string of fine, hilarious finals videos and things like that. And just to see th those guys are guys I really respect and appreciate because you know, in a, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they wouldn't have been able to do what they're doing now. Just to be able to put out content and get it to your fan base, the people who you know are going to love it. And now guys like LeBron and AD are watching their videos during practice and things like that. Like for me, it's like super. And they're younger than me, but it's like super motivating and inspiring to know like anything is really possible in this world. So really just go whatever, whatever vocation or, you know, industry you're trying to get into, obviously you got to work hard and, and bust your butt, but it, it's attainable. Like don't let anybody, you know, if you really feel like you're meant to do it, don't let anybody get in the way of that. You know, why would you listen to anybody project their own doubts and fears onto you? And I work in entertainment. You might write a script, 20 people tell you that, that it sucks and that's fine. You look for the one person who doesn't. And if they see the vision, really the goal is to get it out to the masses. And if the masses support it, that's how you succeed. So, you know. And last thing, one video I look forward to every year is your dad proving he can still dunk. Is that a thing that you take part in as well? Yeah, I've been filming all of those. I've been the uh, the DP for all of those videos. <laughs> I think with him, it's, it's for him, it's also, because he's, he's in honestly great shape. If you look at him now, he's probably like 250. Just, you know, like, I look at pictures of him now, he looks like, you know, he's still in his 40s. He's, you know, he's about to be, I think, 60, what, five this year coming up. But to see him still be able to do that and the pride he takes in doing it, and we've always tried to just up the ante with every video, whatever's trending or topical. This year he dunked, he dunked over two tacos in honor of Taco Fall. But, you know, that thing, to see that video perform at the level it did, I think inspired him to keep, keep grinding. He's got the Peloton he's hidden. You know, 
multiple times a week and, and really trying to, you know, keep it sexy going. So I think he's got he's got one more in him, maybe two more. You know, we want to see. I think Dr. J in his doc, he was like 67 when he dunked. So I think, we, you know, we're trying to get to that point, but I'm trying to keep him focused on the prize. Does he expect you to carry on the tradition? Are you guys supposed to film videos of you guys dunking when you get into your 40s and 50s? I mean, I don't think I can dunk now, to be real with you. Maybe, like, <laughs> maybe now that I've dropped this, this 60, but – yeah, and nah, I think for me, it's just him. Like, he had, like, a 40-inch vert. I think at my highest, my vert was, like, 34, so I'm 35 maybe. Like, I, I knew kind of – I knew when I was done. I knew I knew the last time, you know, I got my duck off. I, you know, I had a moment with myself. But maybe, maybe I'll get one more so my kids will believe me when I tell them that I was okay at basketball. Something to shoot for. King Josiah, a pleasure, man. Thanks so much. Appreciate everything you're doing, and uh, best of luck going forward. I appreciate you for having me. Thank you.